Hi everyone, welcome to Frankston Presbyterian Church Online. It's great to have you joining again with us today. Well, we like to begin our time together by hearing God's word call us to worship him. So I'm going to read now from Psalm 25. Psalm 25. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without, ex without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Well, let's uh, come before God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do trust in you because you are the one who is trustworthy. You are the faithful God, the one who is faithful in all you do, and you speak truth. You have shown us your great mercy and love by sending your Son to be our Saviour, and so we do worship you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we give ourselves today to the hearing of your word, that you would show us your ways, that you would teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth today so that our hearts would be drawn into the worship and enjoyment of the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your spirit would open our eyes to see the glory of your Son, of whom all of Scripture is about. Enable us to hear with humble hearts and enable us to put into practice what you would teach us this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started our new series uh, in the book of Esther. So God willing, we're going to get through all of the book of Esther in this four-week block. And the book of Esther, if you remember from last week, is about the hiddenness of God. Uh, as we saw, uh, God is hidden in the book of Esther. That, that is, he is not mentioned even once. And uh, it seems as though the writer has deliberately written in that way to draw our attention to the, uh, the problem we actually encounter today of the fact that God is unseen uh, and the struggle that that sometimes is for us. Um, but the book of Esther, it's written in such a way that God's non-mention is actually what draws our attention to him. Uh, it shows us that just as we cannot understand the story of Esther, without seeing the unseen one, so we can't understand our own lives without reference to the God who is unseen. Now today we're looking at chapters uh, 3 and 4. So again, it's a, a big section. Uh, so we'll read from chapter 3 now, and, but we'll look at the whole of the section uh, in the sermon. So Esther chapter 3. After these events... King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamandatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than any of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him but he refused to comply 
Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, that, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamandatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the peoples as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurned on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. This is God's word. Back in 2010, an Australian movie came out called Griff the Invisible. And it was quite a clever movie. Uh, one of the elements that it deals with is uh, bullies, uh, coping with bullies. Now, the main character named Griff, uh, he has a very vivid imagination. It's so vivid that in the evening, he puts on a superhero costume and runs around the city pretending to be a vigilante. The trouble with Griff, though, is that his odd characteristics tend to draw the unwanted attention of bullies and so he convinces himself that the way to avoid them is to invent an invisible suit which unfortunately only works in his imagination and ends up drawing more attention uh, more unwanted tension than he'd had before and so after it all goes wrong finally his boss at work sits him down and pretty much says to him Griff if you want to avoid unwanted attention if you really want to be invisible, then you just need to be normal like everyone else. 
normal like everyone else. Do you know, being a follower of Jesus in a society that's increasingly becoming dominated by beliefs and values that are uh, intolerant of, of the Christian faith, uh, you know, as, sometimes as a believer, it means that we do stand out in society, that uh, we can even draw unwanted attention, some hostility perhaps. And so in that sort of society, we actually might find the advice to Griff uh, fairly appealing, you know, to try to be invisible by just being normal, like everyone else, blending in, adopting the same values as our society. So what do we do about that? Well, this passage in Esther, it actually helps us to think through this issue um, because uh, this, this issue with how to deal with hostility because it shows us the hostility we face, it shows us the hero we need, and thirdly, it shows us the stand we must take. So the hostility we face, the hero we need, the stand we must take. Let's look at these three things. First, the hostility that we face. We see that in chapter 3. Here we see that God's people are often hated in the world empire. Remember last week, Esther, that young Jewish girl, uh, had become queen of the Persian empire because she has something that the world highly values. She was incredibly attractive. But although Esther had something highly sought after by the world, we also saw there just a hint that for her to be one of God's people made her <clears throat> vulnerable. And so in chapter 2, verse 10, when she was uh, entered into the beauty contest, it says that Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Then after she became queen in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, it says that Esther had kept her kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. And so this was just a hint that belonging to God's people, uh, God's covenant people, was something that could potentially get you into some kind of trouble. Uh, it's not entirely safe. And so that was just hinted at in chapter 2. But when you get to chapter 3, this now becomes the main focus of the story, the hostility towards God's people. And so it begins with uh, the king uh, honouring a man named Haman, uh, basically making him prime minister. And part of the deal of that was that everyone was commanded to bow down before Haman uh, to show him respect. Uh, we learn, though, in verse 2, that uh, even though the king commanded that, that Mordecai, remember Mordecai, Esther's older cousin? Mordecai, it says would not kneel down or pay him honour. And uh, Haman didn't notice that at first. It's almost like his nose was too high, pointed high into the sky to really realise what was going on around him. But um, eventually Mordecai gets dobbed in. And when Haman actually sees Mordecai refusing to bow down, he is infuriated. See, Haman is someone, we'll look at this next week, but someone who, who lives for adulation, he loves the praise of others. You know, it's the very thing that drives him. He loves having his name up in lights. And so when he sees someone refusing to bow down, this little snub, you know, he sees it as a personal attack and he is enraged. Now, usually the question that 
people looking at this passage ask at this point is, was Mordecai right to do that? Was he right to refuse to bow down? I mean, it wasn't like the king was commanding uh, the worship of Haman. Bowing down was simply a sign of respect for the office. And because it ends up causing so much trouble, as we'll see in a moment, uh, sometimes people even criticize Mordecai's actions, saying that he was acting out of uh, self-centeredness, you know, not thinking about uh, the, the trouble that that could bring on others. And so what was Mordecai's problem with Haman? And was his refusal to bow down the right thing to do? Well, we're actually not told here uh, all the details, but the writer does include two little clues that point us in the direction of how we are to understand Mordecai's refusal to bow down. And the two clues are all about the identity of these two men. So Haman, we're told in verse 1, is son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now Agag, uh, we know Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the time of Saul. So it seems like Haman is a descendant uh, of Agag in some way. And uh, the Amalekites, uh, they were actually the arch enemies of Israel. They were the ones who often attacked Israel, even after Israel were fleeing out of Egypt. You know, slaves on the run, that's when the Amalekites attacked them. And so God uh, had decided that he would uh, blot them out. So there were ancient enemies of Israel, the Amalekites, and uh, it seems as though Haman has a link to them. Uh, and actually, we, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 5, you'll realize that Mordecai, he also had a link to King Saul. You know, both are from the tribe of Benjamin. Both uh, have a father with the name Kish. And so it seems like there's, a, this, there's an old conflict that's resurfaced in this little clash between Haman and Mordecai. And so for some reason to do with that, that, that background, it seems like Mordecai didn't think that he could bring himself to show uh, honor uh, to Haman. Now, you would think that Mordecai is dicing with death, though, by doing this. I mean, this is the Persian Empire. Anyone who, who doesn't toe the line is done away with. Uh, and so what does Haman do when he sees, uh, what does Haman do about Mordecai? Well, have a look at verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So... <laughs> Imagine this, someone doesn't bow down and yeah, maybe they deserve death in this situation. But what does Haman do? He wants to kill absolutely every one of Mordecai's people, the Jews, every single one in the kingdom. And so that actually means he wants to wipe out every Jew in existence at that time. Because all the Jews at the time lived in the Persian Empire, even the ones who returned from Israel after the exile. So they're back in the land of Israel but the land of Israel is still in the Persian kingdom. And so this is an edict, well, this is a plan to kill every single Jew alive at the time. It's a massive overreaction. This would make absolutely no sense to us at all, except that from the rest of the Bible, we know that there's more going on here behind the scenes. This is a hatred that's far deeper than just a reaction against a personal attack. This is actually an expression of an ancient hostility towards God and his people. 
It's so ancient that it goes back even further than Agag and the Amalekites. It can be seen right back at the beginning in Cain's murder of Abel. And that even goes back even further to the unseen conflict, the, the rage of the devil against God himself. And so it's actually impossible to understand Haman's reaction to Mordecai and, and his hatred of, of the people. It's, it's impossible to understand that without seeing this unseen conflict going on. And you can even see the reflections of this conflict in the way Haman uh, carries out this plan. So in verses 8, uh, verses 8 to 9, he brings an accusation against the Jews to King Xerxes and uh, we see it's a deceitful accusation. It's full of half-truths and, and, and skewed information. So look at verse 8. It says, Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Yeah, that bit's true. Uh, their customs are different from all the other people. Yeah, that's true as well. And they do not obey the king's laws. Well, here we, we see a diversion from the truth because... It's not entirely true. It's not in the, best, the king's best interest to tolerate them. What about the fact that Mordecai, a Jew, saved the king's life, as we saw last week? So this, it's just twisted truth. It's taking truth and turning into a half-truth, which is actually a lie. So it's a deceitful accusation. Uh, Haman's edict also shows a uh, murderous hostility so the edict is in verse 13, and it reads, uh, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to plunder their goods. So here we have a visible expression of an invisible warfare. And the book of Esther, like we see, it describes the unseen things. It describes them just as we would encounter them today. But it gives us just enough clues so that we can see what is unseen. Uh, that we can see, in this case, this ancient hostility toward God and his people. And so in Haman's deceitful and murderous plot, we can actually see reflections of the father of lies, who was a murderer from the beginning, as Jesus said in John 8. Or as Ephesians 6 verse 12 puts it, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Now this is so important for us to grasp. This actually helps us understand why it is that Christians are the most persecuted people on the face of the earth. I mean, you don't hear that much in the media, but uh, if you follow a, um, a website like Barnabas Fund, uh, Barnabas Fund published story after story of the violence done to the followers of Jesus in the world. Now, it all seems a lot more civilized in our part of the world, and yet the hostility is still there. It actually seems to be increasing. This is just a reminder, like we saw last week, that this world, the world empire, is not our true home if we belong to Christ. Uh, if we belong to, to Christ, then to live in this world is to be rejected by the world. It's to be hated by the world. And so that's what chapter 3 is about. It's about the hatred toward God's people in the world empire. Well, what do we do about this hatred then? What do we do about the hatred of the world? 
and the hatred of the evil one. How do we overcome it? Well, the Bible has a lot to say in answer to that question. But this passage before us shows us that the most important answer in dealing with this hatred is that God's people need a hero to save them. A hero to save them from this hatred. And who will that hero be? Well, let's listen to chapter 4. So chapter 4 begins uh, by telling us that Mordecai is obviously very upset, as are all the Jews in the empire. Uh, They're all under the sentence of death. Now, can you imagine being in that situation? Can you imagine that on your calendar you've got marked a day when anyone, anyone who likes, can legally kill you and steal all your stuff? I mean, imagine living with that under the sentence of death. Well, this disaster, it, it, it kicks off a relayed conversation between Mordecai and Esther because Esther, well, she's locked away in the palace. Mordecai doesn't have access to her. The only way he can get a message to her is through um, various uh, servants. And uh, so Mordecai, you know, he's crying, his clothes are torn, dust and ashes, public display of grief. A maid tells Esther about it, and uh, it seems as though Esther, maybe she's come a little, become a little bit too comfortable in her palace life because when she hears about Mordecai's public display of grief, she tries to solve that by sending him new clothes. You know, that's, that's how the world empire works. It's all about appearances. And so she tries to solve his pain uh, with a new wardrobe. Obviously, that didn't work. Um, so verse 5, uh, she sends a servant named uh, Hathak to find out what's going on. And Mordecai tells him everything, even giving him a copy of the edict uh, to take to Esther. But most importantly, Mordecai urges Esther to go to the king and plead with him to reverse the edict for, have a look at the end of verse 8, for her people. See, this is the first time that Esther is called to identify with the people of God. Up until now, Mordecai has forbidden her to, to reveal her real identity. He was so concerned for her uh, safety in that position that, that he, he told her to keep your head down, don't reveal your identity, um, be invisible, just be like everyone else. But as, as we can see here, it doesn't work. Uh, you, you actually can't be a secret believer. You can't practice your faith in private only. Um, now, Hathak, he takes all of this info to Esther in, in verses 8 to 9. But in response, Esther pretty much says, that is impossible. I can't just go into the king. In fact, at the end of verse 11, it sounds like Esther doesn't see the king all that often. Uh, and, And everyone knows that in the Persian Empire, no one can just barge in on the king's presence and expect to live. That's a death sentence. Anyone who goes to the king without being summoned will be struck dead. Even the queen. I mean, how's that for a marriage? The only possible exception is if if the king is in a good mood that day and extends the gold scepter, giving uh, the person a free pass. And so essentially Esther is saying to Mordecai, I cannot do what you're asking. I cannot go and plead for the deliverance of the people. I can't do it. And now we have the most important speech in the entire book of Esther, and it's by Mordecai. So have a look at verses 12 to 14. 
When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this message. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now notice the way Mordecai thinks about this edict to kill all the Jews. Does he think that it will succeed? Not at all. He's very confident that it won't succeed, even if Esther doesn't stand up and plead for the deliverance. He still firmly believes that this edict will fail. Why is that? Because verse 14, he says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He knows that deliverance will come. How can he be so confident? And the only explanation is that he believes the promise, God's promise in Genesis 12, that through a descendant of Abraham, the entire earth will be blessed. And so the reasoning is, how could the entire earth be blessed through a descendant of Abraham if all the descendants are wiped out? Clearly, that is not going to happen. God will send deliverance. Salvation will come. You know, God's not just going to go, oh, well, I give up on my promise. No, no, the Messiah who will bring the blessing will come. And so Mordecai is confident that it won't succeed, but it probably won't include him and Esther if Esther doesn't take her stand right now. You know, either way, God's going to rescue his people. But Mordecai says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What's implied in that statement? Who knows? Who knows that you, you, you've been born beautiful, uh, win, win the beauty contest, become queen of Persia. Who knows that all of that? Who knows that if that hasn't been brought about by an invisible hand for such a time as this, so that you can go to the king as mediator and plead for the deliverance of your people. And so with that speech, from this point on, we see a dramatic change in Esther. Up until now, she's done all that it takes to blend in. She's tried to be invisible in the world empire. But in practice, that, meant, that has meant that she's lived a double life. It's meant that in terms of character, she's been deeply compromised. Uh, she's been passive and compliant with the world. But all of that changes from this point on. This speech from Mordecai, it really is the turning point in her life. Because from now on, she will stand up and identify with God, with his people. She will stake her life on the promises of God. And so she says in verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away <clears throat> and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And so the hero of this story is Esther. You know, although she is weak and vulnerable, she courageously risked her life to go into the place of power to act as mediator and plead for the deliverance of her people. Now, does that remind you of anyone? 
See, isn't it interesting that God chose to save his people at this time, not by dividing a sea or by uh, fire from heaven or by striking all of the enemies with blindness. The way God chose to save his people at this time was just by putting someone in the right place at the right time to act as mediator, to, to intercede for her people. And so in this way, <clears throat> Esther foreshadows the one true mediator, the one who will go into the ultimate place of power to act as mediator and plead for the deliverance of his people. And although Esther risked her life to save her people, Jesus actually gave up his life. And yet it's through Jesus' death, it's through his death on the cross that the hatred of the evil one the, the real cause of all this hostility and conflict in the world, it's through Jesus' death that that hatred is ultimately conquered. Hebrews 2.14 says about Jesus, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So to, to belong to Jesus is to be hated by the world. It puts you in the firing line of the evil one. But to belong to Jesus is to overcome the world because his victory over sin, over Satan, over death, that's the victory that all who belong to him share in. He is our mediator. He's the one who pleads for us. And so no accusation of the devil, no edict of the sentence of death, no hostility of the world will ultimately overcome you if you are in Christ. See, Jesus is the hero who courageously chose to face death in order to save his people. So we've seen the hostility that we face. We've seen the hero that we need in Jesus. Thirdly, though, we see here the stand we must take. You see, Esther, she not only anticipates the courage and role of Jesus for us, but she also anticipates the faith that believers need to have in the world empire today. You see, the hostility that existed toward the people of God in Esther's day is the exact same hostility that exists to the people of God today. It's the same people, Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's the people who trust in God's promise, which is fulfilled in Christ. And this, this, it's the same hostility because it has ultimately the same source, the evil one. And when you think about that, when you think about the hostility and even the, the sense that it seems to be growing in our society today, that is enough to make you want to go into hiding. You know, you might be tempted to live a double life, uh, to try to be invisible, you know, like that advice to Griff. Just be normal like everyone else. Try to blend in. Keep your faith private. Uh, try to get along in the world. See, we might be tempted to think that that's the way to survive, but it doesn't work because like we see in Esther, Eventually, you'll be faced with a choice, a situ no, eventually you'll be faced with a situation where you'll have to make a choice. Will you side with Christ or will you side with the world? You know, where do you get the courage to identify with Christ, though? Where do you get the courage to stand for him, even willing to risk your life, if it ever came to that? Where do you get that courage? You get it in the same place that Esther got her courage. It's in the message from Mordecai. 
And that message of Mordecai was really just a statement of the gospel. When he said relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, he was actually telling the gospel to Esther. He's, he's telling her of God's promise of deliverance. That's what the message is. God will deliver his people. This is something you can stake your life on, that God will deliver his people. And he has already confirmed that promise in the sending of his son, and he's confirmed it in the, the most obvious way in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. How can you be certain that God will deliver his people because Jesus died and rose again? And so if you're in him, you too, even though you die, will rise again. You will live forever. You're free forever. And so siding with the Lord Jesus rather than siding with the world, it's the only way to escape the even bigger sentence of death that hangs over everyone because of sin. And so Esther shows us what real faith looks like in the face of hostility. See, it's the courage to stand. It's the courage to identify with Christ and to identify with his people, even if that's dangerous. And so that means that we don't live for the comfort of the world. We don't live for the popularity and acceptance of the world. We live for Christ. We identify with him and we stand up and speak courageously for him. That's what it looks like. In fact, in a lesser way, we can actually apply these words that Mordecai spoke to Esther to ourselves. You know, when Mordecai said, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You know, obviously, we're not mediators speaking on behalf of the entire people of God. But in a, in a lesser way, who knows? Maybe God has put you in the position that you're in today for such a time as this to stand up and speak courageously for him. Maybe God has placed you in your workplace or in your school or in your family or in your street uh, or in your home even. Maybe he's put you here for such a time as this to speak up for him, to make a stand and, and tell others about him. You know, perhaps tomorrow you'll be going to work. You'll be working alongside other people or you'll be sitting beside someone on a train or seeing some uh, visiting family and the opportunity comes along to take a stand, to speak courageously for Jesus. Will you take that? Who knows, but that you have come to that position for such a time as this. Where do you get the courage to do it? You think about the courage of our hero, the Lord Jesus, the courage that sent him to the cross, that he would give his life for you. If you know that he has done that for you, then you know that he is worth standing up for. Amen. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you that in Esther we see a shadow of the courage of the Lord Jesus we thank you that relief and deliverance has arisen from another place, that it's come from heaven, the eternal Son of God sent into the world. We praise you that he came to his royal position for such a time as this to bring salvation. And we thank you that Jesus determined, if I perish, I perish. We praise you that in his death on the cross uh, for our sin, that our sin has been taken away, that death is now defeated, and we have been set free from the power of the evil one. 
Lord, we know that Satan's accusations have no hold on us anymore, for we are justified in Christ. And although he rages against you and against the church, we know that his doom is sure and he cannot ultimately harm those who belong to you. But Father, we know that although Satan's power has no hold of us, we know that those who belong to Jesus are the target of his ongoing hatred. And we know that in this world we will experience that in different ways because your word says that all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of this dark age. But Father, help us to stand on your promise. Help us to be confident that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And we know that by your grace, we can stand against the devil's schemes by your grace alone. Uh, But help us, Father, to meditate on the courage of Jesus, that we would see him going to that cross, facing uh, the eternal wrath of God in our place. And Lord, help us to think about the courage that enabled him to do that. And we pray that that would change our hearts, that we would be so in awe of the Lord Jesus and what he has done, that that would overshadow any fear that we might have of the world or any craving after the approval of the world. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us grace, that we would take up the courage that you give by your spirit, uh, that we would stand for you, even if that does make uh, life harder. But help us to do that in response to the one who gave up everything for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, 1 Peter 5 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same struggle. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the glory. Amen. See you next week.